0: Hello and welcome to the Mount Vigil Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm Blaine. And today we are going to be talking about two very important moments in the Jesus story, Ascension and Pentecost. We're continuing our Story of God series. The last three episodes were uh, on the person of Jesus and his work. And we are currently, we're basically bridging the conversation between Jesus and the church.
1: Yes. I just listened on the way in to a first edit of our third conversation on Jesus. And it is an inexhaustible subject. So as I was listening, I wanted to have, I actually wanted to be a part of the conversation with (laughs) both of us because I kept wanting to chime in and say, oh, Blaine, interesting point, but this actually links to something you're really overlooking in the salvation story. This beautiful tapestry, we've barely begun to plummet, which is why I'm glad we have a little more time, at least, to emphasize the ascension and events of Pentecost. However, the climax of the story of God, which is the work of Christ is the ongoing lens through which everything else is going to be seen. So mm. we're far from done from talking about Jesus because everything we say henceforth about how this work gets done, how people become like Jesus, how we read the times, how we interpret violence is going to circle back through the work of Christ and add depth to that conversation. That's how I'm
0: consoling myself. I console myself after every episode and with the idea that Maybe someday we'll come back and talk more about the things we missed, which are many. Uh, We also didn't talk adequately, I feel, about resurrection, though I know we mentioned it many times, and we will be coming back to that subject when we talk about the eschaton, the resurrection of the dead, and the return of Christ. So I I console myself with that thought. And then I want to lay out my sense of the, the cosmic beats of the establishment of the Church, point out the ones that we're, we are not going to address adequately or at all, um, but to give you a sense of, like, what are all the things happening as Jesus establishes his church? And the way that I think about it is we have Jesus' Passion and Crucifixion, we have the Harrowing of Hell slash Holy Saturday, of course, Resurrection, and then the subjects of, of the day, Ascension and Pentecost, also the fall of Jerusalem, and finally, the establishment of the church by the sent out ones, the apostles. Today, we're not going to talk about the harrowing of hell because, one, we just forgot to plan to, I guess, and uh, it's, a, it's a, one of the many super neglected things that happen in the Jesus story, and may, maybe someday we'll come back and talk about it, but I feel it would be a bit of a distraction, and we're not prepared for it. Go read the Gospel of Nicodemus,
1: which you can find online, which is an early Christian story that is theologically quite excellent that explores the harrowing of hell, and that will be your gateway drug into that vital event.
0: You also might consider joining a an Orthodox church for that particular day, which is not on the same day as Holy Saturday for the, for the rest of the church, but is the best expression of how the church can liturgically Observe and enter into the story in which Jesus descends into hell. We are, we're also, we, we, we've talked at length, I think, about the fall of Jerusalem. And it's only in the last year or so that the fall of Jerusalem has, in my imagination, mostly as a result of reading Matthew, um, become cosmically significant in the establishment of the church. Not that I've discovered this, it's old news, but it, with the destruction of the temple, and the geographical center of worship of Yahweh on earth, that's, that's essential. It's part of the story. It's cosmically significant. And it's paired with the spreading of the gospel and the establishment of the church.
1: Do you want to say how, how now or wait until we get there? Because I agree it's enormously significant. And the destruction of the temple links directly to the purification of the temple in the work of Christ, and is therefore
0: a part of the Passover scene. I don't have anything else to say about that at this juncture. We can chase that rabbit currently. Um, We're for sure going to get there at some point. Yeah. And, and we, we, we've actually said, I think, quite a lot about it. Though I'm, I, think, I, I think I'm finding I tend to, in my memory, conflate teaching with our church and teaching on this podcast and in my personal studies, so I don't know what I've actually said here.
1: I know. You don't have the advantage also of listening back through. No, I haven't been doing that. <laughs> so let me make a point right now, which is when the second Jewish-Roman war began, which is the one that was going to culminate in the siege of Jerusalem and the sacking and raising of the temple, one of the first things that the various sects in that war which that was an extremely complicated war, with multiple leaders wanting different things So all you dads out there who are military history nerds, pick up a copy of Josephus at your local used bookstore and read it. It's very good. But one of the first things they did was destroy the records that were kept in the temple because the political seat and the theocratic seat were the same. That's what a theocracy is. So inside the temple, they kept the tax records that related to the management of land in Judea and in Idumea. And that matters because when Jesus purifies the temple, the temple does not know it's the day of its visitation. Yahweh shows up to check on the centuries-old commission of the Jewish people, finds them in collusion with empire, having cut a deal with the third beast of the apocalypse. And what he does is kicks everyone out, takes over the entire temple complex, and in so doing, would have taken over the political administrative tax seat, where all of the records were. And it was so significant. You know, Herod built a fortress that shared a wall with the temple so that he could see what was going on inside the temple complex, because revolutions were were always starting there. And when Jesus purified the temple, no one did anything, which is pretty remarkable, given that there would have been a garrison that was there around the time of the Passover to make sure no revolution started. Jesus started one and got away with it, which kind of demonstrates the power that must have been exuding from him at the time Mm. to have the puppet government and the Roman government both not mess with him when he did that. But the purification of the temple, we said before, signals the end of temple service. It's going to facilitate one last passover where something, I think it's like 200,000 lambs that year were killed in the temple. Which just make I had always pictured okay, you have passover lambs, they have to die in the temple. I don't know, a few hundred? Yeah, try a few hundred thousand and the blood covering the temple complex and literally running down the steps into the city. So it gets its last moment. Before the focal point of worship is going to shift following the work of Christ. So, when the temple is raised, you're right, you have a cosmic, symbolic, rich event indicating that the dwelling place of God with man must be somewhere else. That's all I have to say about that. You have (laughs) a lot to say about the ascension. I have nothing to say about the ascension. So, where should we go? (laughs) That
0: was a masterful historical textualization of this conversation. Let's provide some more context about Ascension and Pentecost. So Jesus goes through his passion and crucifixion, and three days later, is resurrected. Ish. And, and by ish, I mean three days. <laughs> he was fully resurrected. <clears throat> he, the scriptures tell us, stay with the disciples and the people that are you know, with them for 40 days, and then... Random number. Random number. And then he ascends, and 10 days later, the Spirit descends onto the believers at Pentecost. So, already the the numerology is showing us the the meaning, the structure of what's happening here. Forty days, 40 years are what precede the establishment of the people of Israel at the mountain um, with the descendant of the Torah, and 40 days are what precedes Jesus choosing of the 12 disciples and establishing a new people. And then immediately, he does it again, 40 days with the early church, the early believers, after his resurrection, before the establishment of the church of a new humanity that will be the the dwelling place of God on earth. Okay.
2: I have questions, but my first question is, Anthony, you've been steeping yourself in the Ascension, what is the right question that a person should ask about it?
0: (laughs) Okay, there are lots of ways of answering that, but here's kind of a more surface level way of answering that question. The question that we should ask ourselves with anything that seems kind of weird in the scriptures that we tend to skip over, at least in the evangelical church, should be, what does that mean? Because I think, as a heuristic, all the things that are weird, that are hard to understand, that we tend to gloss over and skip. So Jesus is resurrected, and then if you're lucky, you you acknowledge Pentecost at your church, and then you move on. Typically, it's just there's Easter Sunday, and it's just kind of a one-off in the year. Um, the question should be: What does that mean? Why is that there? And another way of asking it is: Why do the Catholics and the Orthodox and uh, other kind of high church Protestant Um, denominations acknowledge this? Why is this a big thing for them, but not for us? What What am I missing out on?
1: What I want to say, what that makes me think of is the way that our emphases and celebrations reflect the place we think the world is and the thing that we think Jesus did. So celebrating the resurrection is appropriate and good and essential. That is the high point of the salvation story. It is not the end,
2: and the ascension is going to unpack, it's going to
1: explain Jesus' authority over the cosmos, his fulfillment of the visions of Daniel. It's going to look forward, in fact, to the second coming, which we're all anticipating, And it's a vital part of our security as the people of God. So, you said the question is, what is it? A person should see the event and say, what's happening here? Well, we're in Bible study, and you're the teacher. Anthony, what is it?
0: With the ascension, well, first off, I'll say that the ascension and Pentecost are two sides of one coin two sides of the establishment of the church, and Jesus fulfilling his mission. Jesus takes our embodied humanity into the heavens with the Father, and he sends the Spirit of God to indwell the new temple, the church, separated by 10 days of nervous anticipation, where Jesus says to the the disciples, go and wait until you are empowered by the Spirit to fulfill the mission of the church.
1: Yeah, one intriguing note on this is that in Paul, when he writes, he who descended is also the one who ascended and gave gifts to men, something that is cool is that you can read that verse two ways. It can describe the harrowing of hell, and it can describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. So if it's the harrowing of hell, you say, oh, but the one who ascended, Christ, is also the one who descended and he gave gifts Amen. So, oh, Jesus who ascended is also the one who went into the lower regions of the earth and returned from death. That's one possible reading. But it is also possible that Paul is fleshing out for his readers the theology of the Trinity, which was apocalypsed at Pentecost. The Spirit was not a new thing, but the three eternal hypostasis of the Trinity were revealed to humanity in the events of the story. And one of the Holy Spirit's decisive events is Pentecost. So Paul could be saying, he who descended, referring to the Holy Spirit, is also the one who ascended, Christ, so the three are one, and the one who gave gifts to man is in fact the seal, which is the Holy Spirit that comes at Pentecost. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's so much going on. That's really cool. I've actually never put, uh, read that passage that way. I got that from Michael Heiser. So
0: I Michael, thank on. you. Thank you, Dr. Heiser. And bless your healing. Okay, so let's go back a little bit and read the story of the Ascension. This is a good so, starting place. <laughs> so if people who have any idea what we're talking about. Um, and it's told twice by the same author, Luke, and Luke Acts. So he ends his gospel with the story of the Ascension, and he begins the story of the church, the early, the early days of the church, in acts with the story of the Ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in Luke twenty four fifty through 53, he writes, And he led them out, and Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, And we're continually in the temple blessing God. Something I I had never noticed until today preparing these notes is the beauty of, as he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So like him blessing them in the act of ascending into the heavens. Okay, so Acts 1, 6 through, I'll just go ahead and read 1 through, man, where to stop? (laughs) And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's funny, on this podcast, uh, every time that I finish reading a passage, I have to like uh, resist the urge to say the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, it's just... There's no reason to not do that. It's instinct. I know.
1: (laughs) It's because you have to say something uh-huh. when you finish reading the revelation
0: of God in scripture. True. It's really important stuff. <laughs> it's only right.
1: It's like the Selah moment after you read, I don't know, a beautiful letter from a person. Even that needs a moment of wow <laughs> and, or whoa.
0: So I think one of our goals for you listener in this conversation is to come away with a sense of awe and intrigue and curiosity about Ascension, and that every year, hopefully, as your church goes through um, Resurrection Sunday and whatever other observances they go through, that you pause and meditate on the mystery, the beauty, the gift of Ascension. If you're like me, having grown up in the evangelical church, this was—I don't know, I'm not sure if it was ever once mentioned in my entire life— sitting in pews, hearing sermons. And that's okay. That happens. But I'm really grateful to be invited into this story at a deeper level. The ascension is not just a, a way to explain where Jesus went. It's not a kind of a goofy, he d- disappeared into the clouds, and now that's how the, the, the authors of the scriptures gloss over the fact that he's not here in the body anymore. Um, it's cosmically significant it changes everything it's essential to the establishment of the church it's essential to your life personally and it's paired with after this 10 day wait the sending of the holy spirit at pentecost which is the birthday of the church i'm going to read for you
1: the relevant passage from daniel i i still remember where i was in the car when i first realized or learned listening to a show that the Ascension was related to Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. It was a stop the podcast and wait, wait moment. And hopefully you've heard this already, but it bears repeating because it's epic. Here's Daniel chapter seven, starting in verse nine. As I looked Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Pause on that. Descriptions of the Ancient of Days riff on and radically upgrade depictions of the supreme god from the ancient world. So you're welcome, if you're a nerd, to go look at something called the Jebel al-Uruk knife which we'll put in the show notes, and one other statue that are very, very, very old depictions of the supreme creator deity. And he has long, white, pure hair and a beard, and his appearance is like fire. And the gift of the Hebrew scriptures is that they put Yahweh in his proper place. They say, yes, the Ancient of Days, the supreme creator is a thing, but it's not El or Yam or anyone else, it is the uncreated Yahweh. Additionally, the images of the Ancient of Days, which are in Daniel 7 and then get riffed on all the way through Revelation, take other dimensions of God's nature and pull them in to a single image. So if you're looking and go, wow, his throne was flaming with fire and all its wheels were ablaze. This is a great moment to scour the Old Testament for images of the chariot throne and see, wait a second, so God's throne is a chariot depicting his, domin- his mobile dominion over the entirety of the nations. He's not localized in a temple over a people with a language, but that's also the ultimate creator God, and that is also Yahweh. So these images work in many ways.
0: And: Also, the thrones were considered are considered a rank of angels. so you can imagine these spinning wheels of fire and, and the very throne itself being God seated upon beautiful, terrifying angelic beings.
1: Yes, they are one of your favorite word choirs.
0: <laughs> a choir of angels: A choir
1: of angels. We're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but <laughs> Uh, In Revelation, John sees war in heaven, and a third of the stars are swept out of the sky. Well, in the Old Testament, and actually in the entirety of the scriptures, the entirety of God's government over the nations is represented by what number, Anthony? Starts with a seven. Seven zero. Seven zero, or sometimes 72... For Second Temple reasons. Well, do you happen to know how many elders are before the throne of God in the book of Revelation? I'll tell you it's 24. What do you think one-third of 72 is? 24. So the the you have God's throne, you have him enthroned on angels, then you actually have a depiction of the divine council represented in the symbolic number of 70 or 72. But by the time you get To the post-ascension throne room of God, some of the archi enthroned above the world are humans who have become a part (laughs) of God's government, taking the place of rebel angels. Anyway, that was only the first two verses. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. It's hard not to stop and talk about these things. In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed.
0: Praise God.
1: Wow! That is a picture of the ascension. Daniel is seeing the ascension. So being carried up on the clouds of heaven to be given authority from the ancient of days is the image that Luke refers to when he describes Jesus raising up his arms, blessing them, and then going on the clouds of heaven to rule the universe and The next line, so he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. You you know, pick your punctuation based on your translation, but something happens. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. When does that happen?
0: That happens at Pentecost. That
1: happens at Pentecost.
0: So we can see, every time that you read the Gospels and you see Jesus being referred to as the Son of Man, typically referring to himself as the Son of Man, He's alluding to this passage in Daniel that you just read. And Jesus, as son of man, like the, you know, the one like a son of man ascending to the Ancient of Days just to be seated in glory, at, in victory. The fulfillment of Jesus as son of man happens at ascension. The son returns to the Father and is seated on his throne, glory. You just connected several dots that I've never connected before, and that's awesome.
1: Isn't it just a crazy story? This is why... The dominoes that start to fall in a disastrous way in the history of the church when people have tried to downplay the resurrection are what they are because Jesus being resurrected in a glorified body revealed as Yahweh sets him up to, in that glorified body, as the Son of Man, ride on the clouds of heaven to take authority over the entire cosmos. So you need these events to keep the story moving. Mm-hmm. Nothing is dispensable. And when he is gone, he's then prepared to
0: send the helper. Good. I have a long quote. I have two long quotes. The first of which is from a book called The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism by Ben Myers. And side note here, this series of books is called, uh, is by Lexham Press, and they're called Krishna Essentials. And I can't recommend them enough. They cover the Christian essentials, things like baptism, ascension, or no, baptism, the Apostles' Creed, many other uh, kind of core texts and doctrines of the church. And they do so in in very readable short texts that are profound and very deep. And also, they're just beautiful books that fit together beautifully on your shelf.
1: I'm glad we're going to have an example because I just listened to you quote at length from Athanasius. And I think that your definition of a readable book
0: <laughs> might not be
1: the normal person's definition of a readable book. These
0: books are, are actually readable. Prove it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's notable that in the Apostles' Creed, which is the earliest, and in a sense, most important creed, Nicene you know, might be, compete for that status, except it builds upon the Apostles' Creed. And
1: then Nicene Constantinople, which is the one we <laughs> mostly
0: say, is, in my view... The crown jewel of the creeds. (laughs) So in the Apostles' Creed, it says he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Another heuristic that you can be led by is in these creeds, in the Athanasian Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in the Apostles' Creed, ask yourself, why is that there? As you read through them, hopefully memorize them, the things that we tend to skip over, again, contain riches. So here's the quote from the book. When the New Testament writers speak of the ascension, they are not describing Jesus' absence, but his sovereign presence throughout creation. He has not gone away, but has become even more fully present. His ascent to the right hand of the Father is his public enthronement over all worldly power. No scriptural passage is quoted so often in the New Testament as Psalm 110.1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The earliest Christians proclaimed that Jesus had been enthroned as the, as the universal Lord and Messiah. The exalted Christ has entered his glory. From now on, all things are subject to his authority. Because he has ascended, his life is universally available. His loving authority extends over the whole creation and is present wherever believers assemble. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. So the ascension is not meant to make us wonder where Jesus has gone. Instead, it ought to elicit the psalmist's question, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Because Jesus has ascended, he is even nearer to us and to all things. In him, all things hold together. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. And through our union with Christ, we share also in his ascension. The lives of believers are now forever located in Christ. As Paul so often says, when Jesus ascends to the Father, he takes our humanity with him. To quote Irenaeus again, because Jesus has ascended, we also ascend through the Spirit to the Son and through the Son to the Father. In Jesus, our nature has taken up residence in the presence of God. Something this captures one of my favorite verses in the New Testament from Hebrews Well, it's funny I say that because I don't have the verse memorized. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is our anchor in the heavenlies. The one time the word anchor is used in the entire New Testament is right there in Hebrews. Jesus is our anchor in the heavenlies. I've always thought that if I were to get tattoos, which I have not done and probably never will, I would get an anchor tattoo to remind me of that verse. So this idea that the ascension, Jesus brings our humanity up into the heavens— and anchors us with him in the heavenlies at all times. I don't even know what to say, man.
1: People, people are giving me crap for saying yes or that's so amazing, but it is. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yes, Anthony. Woof. <laughs> that's so amazing. <laughs> Woof. The Ascension is amazing and a big deal. And we are at 33 minutes of what will likely be a one-hour show. So we're going to start talking about Pentecost and see where we get. Uh,
0: I have this Karl Barth quote that I really want to read. It is going to be hard. It's, it's not. If you read Carl as... Barth,
1: you <laughs> then have to go wash your mouth with soap. <laughs> <laughs> I am totally kidding. Karl Barth is a genius and, and I,
0: okay. should be,
1: I should be careful not to make fun of them.
0: I'm going to skip. Them? What is is he?
1: The different geniuses and fathers Uh, and teachers of the
0: faith. Gotcha. Well, he's a profoundly sinful and broken man, like us all, but he had incredible insight into the scriptures. I'm going to skip the quote. No, no, no. No, no, I'm I'm going to skip it, actually, because one, it's going to be pretty hard to understand in this audible format. And what I will do, actually, is put it in the show notes so that anyone that wants to dig into Karl Barth's... And, and interestingly, the book is Church Dogmatics in outline. It's his, uh, you know, Church Dogmatics for, for Regular Humans. And in that book, he also goes over the Apostles' Creed and over this passage, he ascended, he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So the, the points that I wanted to capture out of Karl Barth are a few things. One, that with the ascension and with Pentecost, the end times begin. A new time begins, a new age, and it's the final age before the resurrection. Um, he also makes the point that, again, Jesus' ascension is so incredibly important. It's not just like I, I grew up. I grew up with this concept of, of the ascension as being purely functional in this kind of flat way of like, well, it's good that Jesus left and sent the Holy Spirit because in his body, he couldn't be with all people at all times. That's true. But the depth of that statement goes so much deeper than uh, it was ever explained to me. So Jesus is incarnate. And as he ascends into the heavenlies, he brings our incarnate humanity with him, and now humanity is anchored with him in the heavens. What? This is essential. Like, you, you're, you're missing half of the story of Pentecost ascension, the establishment of the church. If you only think about the Spirit descending, and by, I mean, that, Daniel, uh, it, it would have been enough. That, that would be amazing, right? Just, start, just Just understanding the descent of the Holy Spirit. But we must know that we are anchored in the heavenlies. You
1: just said Dianu in a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, well, we're approaching Passover here, so it's good. Um, I'm No, you are going to get your thought back.
1: We're anchored in the heavenlies. This is a huge deal. We have a great high priest who has entered the Holy of Holies once for all. And so the two priestly functions are to represent heaven to earth. A lot of that happens in the incarnation where the revelation of God is, in, is the incarnate Christ. But what about the flip side? What about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, uh, representing all, being all of humanity in union with God? The ascension, my friends, the ascension. When Jesus, the human, which you just said, takes our humanity and anchors it into eternity, Jesus, the human high priest, shows earth to heaven, fusing the union of the two realms by in his body being enthroned in the heavenlies above all
0: things. Exactly. We should be thinking of the transfiguration, that moment when Jesus takes the disciples onto some lonely mountain and stands at the peak and communes with Moses and Elijah and in Him, in His glorified, in the glorified vision of Jesus, we see the marriage of heaven and earth. Maybe one of the meta themes or, or goals that the telos of creation is for heaven and earth to come together. That's what we see with the heavenly city descending in Revelation. So that we get, we get a four, the disciples, the three, get a foretaste of that at the Transfiguration, and we can kind of see, we can see. Ascension and Pentecost is being the transfiguration of the earth and it's not complete yet it will be complete when the heavenly city descends at the eschaton when Jesus returns and all the dead are raised but the the church is now the foretelling of that on the earth everywhere the church is heaven and earth are married heaven and earth are together in Christ so everywhere the creation church goes is, up and the spirit comes down
1: everywhere the church is heaven and earth are married there we go. All right. are Thank you, <laughs> That's so good. I'm so glad we had this conversation because it was not in my notes to do so, but our humanity being angered in Christ, that turned on a light for me that I had in the back of my head the high priestly function, but there are always these ways that the threads like come together and make a tight circle.
0: Well, and it answers the question of what does ascension mean to me? Not just how does it help me understand the story, the cosmic beats of the founding of the church and the work of Christ, but what does it mean to me personally? Why do I need this? Why can I meditate on it and draw strength and encouragement with the Spirit?
1: All right. Are you ready for me to blow your mind possibly with something that you actually first suggested to me and then I ran
0: with it? I love when you run with things I suggest to you. Uh, sh- should we first, is this about Pentecost? This is about Pentecost. Okay, let me just read the passage first. Okay. To give the context. So I brought you, listener, through verse 11 in chapter 1 of Acts. We're going to skip down to 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'm going to stop there, even though his sermon goes on and the quote goes on. So we're at Pentecost.
1: Here is where, uh, you may have put this together already. The events of the work of Christ and Pentecost and the events in the life of the church relate to the events of the Jewish calendar, the Jewish feasts, and the various parts of salvation story. So just one example of that is leading date right now, which is it's so fun to do like the rabbit trail work of how this gets discovered. Leading date that's quite persuasive for when Jesus is born is 1 Tishri, 3 BC. 1 Tishri, September 11th. 1 Tishri is the date that Noah lands on Ararat. And it's the beginning of one version of the Jewish calendar. So it starts a brand new cycle of the salvation story relating to the microcosm salvation story of the flood. Well, and so what you said one time in a teaching, you were pointing out that the gospel writer's stress that fact, that historical reality in different ways in the arrangement of their texts. And that Matthew puts the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know where I'm going?
0: Yeah, I I, I read about this extensively in those Matthew notes. But go yeah. on, go
1: on. No, well, I, so you say it, and then
0: I'll link the two things. So when is the Sermon on the Mount... You are going to capture more... I think, in, especially in regards to the stars, the Jewish and Christian astrology, so to speak, don't get freaked out, listener, um, it's simply how God communicates his cosmic plans in the arrangement of the stars. Um, okay, so we have several things layered over each other. We have Mount Sinai, the descent of the Torah, also the judgment that came when Moses came down and the people were rebelling against God by worshiping the golden calf, we have this feast shavuot which is a first fruits feast a jewish feast in which um it, w- it was an agrarian feast first fruits it was also the feast in which uh, israel celebrated the giving of the torah and then we have i'm going to layer one more thing into it and some of some of this we might not have time to fully explain but then we have matthew and we have jesus uh delivering you know, going up the mountain as moses did and then descending after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and the, and the explanation of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Then we have Pentecost, and all of these things layer over each other because Pentecost takes place when Anthony Pentecost takes place on Shavuot. So Pentecost it means fifty. I don't know what cost means, but Penta fifty. Yeah, and fiftieth, fiftieth. Okay, so fifty days after. So fifty days after Passover. Right? That's right. Uh, so Passover fifty days later, Shavuot. That's why Pentecost happens on this day. It had to happen on this day because Jesus fulfills everything in in the Jewish calendar and these rhythms given by God to the people. Foretell Jesus and he fulfills them all, though some are not yet fulfilled in the fall. Some are not yet fulfilled. (laughs) Go on.
1: Some Some are full, but maybe not to overflowing. So for you, listener, what does this mean? Well, uh... The Feast of First Fruits can also be called the Feast of Weeks. There are different names for these things, but this is a celebration of the giving of the law, a celebration of the promise given to Noah, and a number of other things. And it's relevant that it is a first fruits harvest, the first part of the coming
2: plenty. So at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a new law. He gives
1: the eschatological Torah, which is actually, it doesn't repudiate, it brings it to completion and restores the original. Good. And he says, this is how you get to live now, the changed heart. How is that going to happen? Jump forward to the next one. At the same feast, a celebration of the giving of the law, waiting for the moment when it will be written on the human heart, the Holy Spirit descends. And God comes to Tabernacle to live inside his people who become the church.
0: Are your minds blowing? Did you know this already, <laughs> listeners? <laughs> the, again, the fractal nature of the scriptures, the endless illusions uh, and folding into any given story, all the other stories, just delights me endlessly. If you're wondering how we're making the Matthew connection um, something that you might look into if you next time you're reading it, think about Matthew composing that gospel as a liturgical, tr- uh, as a liturgical text for the early church. And there are different beats within Matthew's gospel that we think correspond to different rhythms within the Jewish observance. <laughs> Even if that's not true, we can easily, because of the meaning and the structure of, of the story of the Sermon on the Mount, layer it over. It's certainly, as you said, a a, a recapitulation of the Torah um, in Jesus' teaching of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. I knew... It's not good news until it's fulfilled in Pentecost, because without the Spirit writing that law on our hearts, it would be yet another external thing that we have to live up to. And of course, we, we, we must live up to it. We must live it out and take it seriously. But now we are empowered by the Spirit to do so. And the, the, the illusions between Sinai and between Pentecost go on for days. One example, how many people are, are wiped out? How many people die in judgment because of the worship of, of the golden calf?
1: Oh, oh. man, isn't it 3,000? 3,
0: 3,000. About how many people come into the church at Peter's sermon here at the end of the story of Pentecost?
1: 45.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: about 3,000. And so on and so forth. You should say more because this also is the repudiation of Babel.
0: I was just going to say, I can't believe we haven't mentioned Babel yet. At Babel, at, you know, uh, uh, the man-made mountain, the people are unified, but in their rebellion against Yahweh and in their uh, attempts to, to man- manipulate and worship and interact with the other gods and to become like gods themselves. But they're doing it of their own power and in rebellion and what happens they are scattered and their tongues are divided they end up speaking many different languages but in a way that divides them at pentecost the holy spirit is a spirit of unity in the church the spirit descends appears as flames above their heads and they are now all speaking the same tongue now they all hear it in different tongues but their tongues are united uh, in this miracle of the holy spirit and this is the beginning of
1: furthermore Additionally, oh my gosh, let me slow down. One more word on Babel, and then I'll talk about Pentecost as the redemption of the Assyrian annihilation. So Babel, the best way to figure this out on your own, to have this go deep, you got to channel your inner inner homeschool mom right now. And hopefully we all have one of those. (laughs) And just go ahead and do you know, blank map of the Mediterranean area and get, get Spain, get Upper Africa, get the western side of the Levant, print that map. Then go to Genesis 10, the Table of Nations. This will take you a little time and write in, figure out where all of those people are because the Table of Nations is giving you just a map of the entire world. It's symbolic of the entire world. Cosmos, And write in, okay, these people are over here. These people are over here. I get it. And this isn't, I mean, if you want to go this way, I'll just say this may not really be about how the world gets populated and how human populations spread. This may be in, this may be a sacramental symbolic depiction of how reality works. And so send us emails on that. But (laughs) Then take your map that you've made and filled in and go to the list of Cappadocians and Thracians and clarified peoples from different zones in Egypt and not Egypt and begin to write in where those people are from. And what you will see is that the maps overlay very, very nicely so that Pentecost repudiates, corrects, heals the dispossession of the nations which takes place in genesis 11 at babel and then gets reflected in the in the table of nations which is in genesis 10 so you have that anything you want else you want to say about babel before we talk about the deportation of assyria go on okay but that's not the only thing that's happening so you have n- this nested complex thing. I'm like what I was trying to think of something that isn't a nest. Like you have a nested Russian doll. Russian doll of salvation. <laughs> and <laughs> so you have the celebration of the giving of the law, the eschatological Torah and that beca- and the prophecies, the anticipation of the restoration of the human heart taking place. The, the law being written on the heart with the coming of the Holy Spirit. You also have this very ancient problem beginning to be addressed, which is the dispossessed peoples are all brought back. Salvation is for everyone. The good news is for everyone. Then you have Israel itself, where, you know, 700s, the... Ten tribes that were Israel in the divided monarchy pick a fight with the wrong dog, and they're lost to history. Kind of slightly more complicated than that. Very much more complicated than that. <laughs> uh, if if we had any like uh, ancient Samaritans listening right now, they'd be like, "We were not lost to history." I'm like, "Okay, relax." Um, but. Those tribes, as consolidated entities, get deported into the various regions of the Assyrian Empire and they never come back. And so, when that event was followed by the Babylonian exile and then the return from exile, you know, 587, and then after that, everyone in Judah knew that the prophesied moment of Israel coming back together hadn't happened because the people of God had not returned out of the nations. And so you don't have people of every nation streaming to the holy mountain of God, aka the temple, aka the place where heaven and earth overlap. That happens at Pentecost as well, where these people who represent the entire world and the Assyrian population into which Israel was deported are present, participating by faith, and so back out of the nations, the people of God are coming. But what is the holy mountain? Is it the temple in Jerusalem? No, it's the reconstituted people of God, the church where God is at home again with his creation.
0: That's so good. The more that we layer into the Pentecost story through the scriptures, I'm remembering last year I... Preached at our church on Pentecost Sunday, <laughs> and I just wept the entire time. I was, I was getting. I, I tend to cry when, when I preach. You weep anyways. every time, yeah. That's but, what but this I was, was this was different, man. Yeah, this was yeah. different. It, it wasn't just like a moment of a bubbling over when the Spirit touches me, fills me in this unique way. I, I weep every time, or try awkwardly not to. But in this case, uh, you basically. I'm just using through flashbacks of teaching through these things a year ago. Ish. It
1: was a great moment, man. That was a highlight moment for everyone watching these different pieces of the goodness of God and the kindness of God just hit Anthony and be like, (laughs) and it also (laughs) (laughs) means... (laughs) It's so beautiful. (laughs) Don't you understand?
0: (laughs) Uh, One more thing I want to say about Pentecost is... Much earlier in this podcast, I can't remember what the episode was, we talked about the opening of the nostrils ceremony for pagan idols. This idea that for a pagan idol, there was an an incredibly complex and detailed ritual in which every minute detail of the creating of the idol and even like getting rid of the tools that were used to make the idol and symbolically... In some places, symbolically even like severing the arms of the craftsman that made it. And then there was a, uh, basically to, to sanctify this object, to go from regular matter into something that could hold deity, divine presence. Uh, and then there was a, for many idols in many different people groups, there was a moment in which, or there was a ritual in which the nostrils of the idol were symbolically opened so that the deity would enter it. What episode was that that we were talking about this?
1: Uh, it may have been called Idols. It was, the, it was a, a creation episode, okay. a creation of humanity, image of God.
0: Yeah. Anyways, so something like that. We can see something like that happening here at Pentecost. It was Eden Inception. That's Eden what it Inception. was, which I wanted to call your neighborhood
1: idol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but Emily liked your title more.
0: Eden Inception is pretty... Is good, yeah. Pretty cool.
1: But all of these episodes could be called, you know, Pentecost Inception,
0: so... Yeah, it's <laughs> true. They're all... In, you know, just, just add an Inception to all of our podcast titles from now on. Apocalypse Priest Inception. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Spirit, the breath of God, um, the life of God, the breath of God descends and indwells the believers. M- many times throughout the scriptures, we're told that the church, the gathering, the ecclesia, the called-out people, are the house of God, the theos oikos, the we, the new temple of God. And this is riffing on what you were just saying: the new temple of God, the new mountain of God, the dwelling place of of the Spirit on Earth is first and foremost in the church. The Spirit indwells all of creation, and uh, you know, and Jesus sustains all creation by His very Word. But in a particular covenantal, important way, the Spirit dwells within the temple, which is now the church. This is why
1: it's totally okay to follow Jesus alone, right,
0: Anthony? <laughs> yeah, so I, I was just going to say, there, there is a sense in which we are each individually little temples. We, the Spirit's within us, Jesus is within us, and we, um, we are dwelling places of Yahweh now. But importantly, everywhere in the scriptures that this language is used, it's always ye, to use the, uh, the, uh, the King James language. Ye is the plural of you. Tim Mackie likes to say "y'all," but that's just it. Really grates on my ears. So ye are the body of Christ. Ye are the house of the God. And so, what we see happening in this moment, in this event of the Spirit descending at the establishment of the church, is the nostrils of the idol are opened. And we and we, and we we've talked about how the word idol is simply the word image, and the image of God is most fully expressed in the gathering, in the people of God. And now. And now we are filled with the breath that that God has descended and filled us in our gathering. And we can be empowered to go out and do the work of the church. I have almost climbed out of my chair so many times
1: in this conversation. I hope, friends listening, that as we get into these downstream moments of the story of God, some of the work starts to pay off. It's. You know, this is when, for me, I really began to realize why it was so important to see the Bible as one story. Mm. Otherwise, they're just bonus good events, which, dayenu, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that would be, honestly, that would not be a bad story to live in, where God generously does things, because he does. However, God's universe is much more coherent and epic And unified Mm. than that. So the beats of the story aren't like, and Jesus couldn't stay, so he had to go somewhere. So he went somewhere, and that's the ascension. And we would say, Jesus needed to, as the Son of Man, ride on the clouds of glory, which also, little aside, makes him not Baal, the cloud rider, and unites him to the depictions of... uh. God in the Psalms as the one who walks on the wind and rides on the storm and mounts the cherubim, all of those cool things. But no, he did that because he had to take our humanity into the presence of God and as a human sit down and take the throne above all things. Haven't you been listening to the story so far? And why did the Holy Spirit have to come? because we needed the law written in our hearts and we needed the deportation of Assyria to be corrected and we needed the dispossession of the nations to be reversed and we actually needed union with Christ to become the motivating power of our participation in the work of Jesus, which is what we're doing right now.
0: And we needed the blood of Christ to cleanse the new temple and to prepare the new temple to be a holy dwelling place for the spirit that would descend. Pentecost could not have come before the Passover sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus in which he, uh, his blood purifies and makes a, a dwelling place fit for God.
1: Yes. And again, people are like, Jesus had to go so the spirit could come. Why? I mean, there are lots of places in the Old Testament where multiple hypostasies of the Trinity are present in one scene. <laughs> They're all three at the burning bush. And- it's true.
0: It's true. But you can't just say in this flat, kind of childish way, without taking the time as a disciple of Christ to delve deeper into the economy of salvation, in which all of these things, there's a, to your point, there's a coherence, a logic, uh, the most wonderful philosophical, systematic way of thinking about metaphysics and every aspect of being is found in this story.
1: Yes. So the little point that I wanted to make, because for a long time it was actually annoying to me, that question of why did Jesus have to go for the Holy Spirit to come, And there are multiple answers in this episode. One of them is the universe in which the law gets written on the heart is one on which humanity has been taken into the presence of God and Jesus has assumed the throne over all things. Hmm. So that's the place God's universe has to be
2: for the next beat to happen.
0: Okay. One more quote from the book, The Apostles' Creed by Ben Myers. And by this grim assessment, he's talking about basically the, the multiple falls happening throughout Genesis and sin running rampant in mankind. This grim assessment of human fallenness culminates in the story of Babel. Here, human beings have begun to use their collective life to mock God, and so God divides their language, making it impossible for them to work together. They can no longer share a common world or articulate a common good. They cannot form a coherent society. Each group is a mere splinter of humanity, all scattered across the cursed earth, exiled and alone. But with the coming of Jesus, the story of Babel is reversed. When the Spirit descends, On the frightened company of Jesus' followers, they all begin to speak in different languages. The multicultural crowd outside is astonished to find that each one's language is being spoken by a band of Galileans. They ask, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? The Pentecost story shows the undoing of the fall through the creation of the Christian community. There is now a new human society in which all the old divisions are torn down. That is what happens when the Spirit is present. The Spirit fulfills the Creator's original plan by bringing forth a universal community whose boundaries are as wide as the world. The Spirit broods over the chaos of human nature, lovingly piecing the fragments back together so that together we form an image of the Creator. Paul notes that the presence of the Spirit is marked by heightened individuality as well as a deeper communal belonging. The Spirit fuses unity and diversity by bringing many gifts together in one body. We become more truly ourselves as the Spirit broods over us and as our lives are knit together with our with other lives and stories. In this way, the Spirit broods over each of Christ's followers, renewing the human race one life at a time and drawing all into a common family. Basil, a great 4th century Cappadocian pastor and social reformer, explained it like this, "'The Spirit is like a sunbeam whose grace is present to the one who enjoys it, as if it were present to that one alone.' yet it illuminates land and sea and is mixed with the air. There's nothing more personal and more universal than the Holy Spirit. The thing that I most enjoy out of that passage is this Trinitarian concept of unity and diversity and the Spirit fulfilling both.
2: I really liked that quote. Where to end? I have a couple thoughts. One of them is that this show is airing in the middle of the
1: Lenten season, and this show is good news in the middle of the Lenten season, where as you walk out the pageant of salvation and perform the beats and participate in the glorious thing of that is purgation, you get also these hopeful reminders that Christ has been resurrected and the engine of power is the Holy Spirit who lives in you it comes to my mind as we record this that people do weird things with Pentecost and that the Holy Spirit is, is a divisive a theological issue. I'm laughing because this is such a preposterous thing to say. And man, we didn't even touch, Anthony, we didn't even touch on the theophanic glory cloud. <laughs> we didn't touch on the fire filling the temple at or the tabernacle, and then the Solomon Temple at its consecration, and the lack of fire. And another thing that we didn't touch about, touch on is how the Abrahamic covenant dividing the bodies, vassal treaty, uh, and, which relates to an old Assyrian treaty called the vassal treaty of Ashurbanipal, <laughs> when a frickin' furnace, a torch, and a smoking fire pot pass through the fire, go get your you know, interlinear translation, or go use Blue Letter Bible, or whatever you use, and fire pot? Yeah, I mean, technically, if you happen to know that a fire pot is a furnace, and that in that scene, you're given a glimpse into the interior perichoretic life of God, of just members like fire rolling over on each other. But it's fire. It's the presence of God experienced as the glory cloud that passes through in that scene. So, we didn't say so a lot. Were, so, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so you were
0: saying that people do weird things with Pentecost.
1: I'm sorry. People do weird things. And, they're, uh, and just the one that I want to address by not really addressing is who has the Holy Spirit? Uh, those who are in Christ. So salvation by grace through faithfulness. Have you chosen Jesus to be your Lord? There are a few basic steps. I'm not going to introduce any fear into the process. I'm like, are you following Jesus? Do you, then you have the Holy Spirit. To appropriate it, meaning to push in and take hold of something that is real, it may be helpful to find uh, an elder, a priest, an experienced follower of Jesus to lay their hands on you and pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit. Because that ministry... Is actually a grace. It's a really important thing. And so, in this episode, two things that I would encourage you to contemplate are one, you have the Holy Spirit, the law has been written on your heart, and all of the benefits of Pentecost are yours. Two, appropriating the benefits of Pentecost may be something that you need to do. And just the very basic one if no one's ever laid their hands on you and prayed for you to receive the Holy Spirit, ask someone in the list above to do that. Most likely, nothing weird will happen. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, like we want our experiences of God to be to take us out of our humanity rather than bringing us more deeply to engage our humanity. So if you feel deeply human, that could be a really good thing, as you then learn to recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Anthony, where has your mind gone (laughs) in the end of this conversation?
0: (laughs) That's good. Why did God, why did Yahweh give Israel a calendar to live by? Why was that a key aspect of how he formed them as a people that could understand him, understand how to relate to him, understand the great cosmic story he was telling? Whatever the answers to that question are, they apply to us now, and we are no longer under um, the. We're we're not Jews who who live under the Torah in the same way that Israel did, and yet I highly encourage you to live out, to act out the story of God every year. So when we get together for Christmas, celebrating Advent prior, and we do Ash Wednesday and Lent, and then Holy Week, uh, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday and Holy Saturday, and then Resurrection, Sunday. We should also add to that list Ascension and Pentecost. There's a certain way in which one can only learn the story. There's a certain understanding of the story that you won't gain until you act it out, until you live it out. So with that in mind, I'm going to include in the notes to this show a, a PDF of a little liturgy that I will write for Ascension, so that if you are in a church that has no vocabulary for celebrating Ascension, if you um, are in a church that just that doesn't you know keep that, that doesn't observe that day, well then you can print out this liturgy and with your family, with a few friends, with a few families at a dinner, however you like, you can practice acting out the story and and, and, and uh, observing it. Commemorating it. And it's a way of absorbing and dwelling upon and contemplating the mysteries that we've been talking about today. I feel like we should end with a meditation. I'm, I'm formulating it in my mind.
2: All right. Take your time.
0: <laughs> so, speaking of contemplation, let's just take some time to contemplate the mystery of the ascension and of Pentecost. So, I invite you to get comfy, close your eyes and take several deep breaths. Nice deep diaphragmatic breaths. Coming back into your body, letting go of stress, becoming present in the moment and become attuned to the presence of God, the presence of the spirit dwelling
2: within you, surrounding you. Yeah, and take your time just luxuriate in these breaths.
0: It's incredible how healing even one deep breath can be when when you relax your body and just become aware, attuned
2: to the Spirit.
0: So with your eyes closed as we're continuing to breathe, just pause and meditate on Jesus as your anchor in the heavenly. Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, and you securely attached to him. You can speak out, Jesus, you are my anchor
2: in the heavens. Jesus, you anchor me in the heavens. And likewise, we can contemplate the Spirit being the life of God dwelling within us. Spirit, you dwell within me. You can pray this aloud. Holy Spirit, please baptize me anew. Holy Spirit, come fill me anew. My anchor in the heavenly is the life of God within me. Take some time to listen and see
0: what God is speaking to you, what healing words he has to offer you, what he wants to go after in your heart here in these few moments. And then take a few moments to practice some gratefulness. Jesus, thank you for anchoring me in the heavenlies. Thank you for being seated at the right hand of of the Father over all creation. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. Thank you for pouring your life out in me, God. Yeah, Jesus, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we worship you. Father, we worship you. We thank you for the story that you've told, for your divine economy of salvation. We thank you for sending Jesus, Father. We thank you, Jesus, for defeating all your enemies and being ascended to the Ancient of Days, to being seated in your throne in glory. We thank you, Spirit, for descending to indwell the house of God, the gathered believers, each of us in our very bodies, that you are the life of God present within us. Amen.
1: Good by Jesus is coming back on Lord is coming, He's coming up his own.
2: Lord He's coming, is coming down
1: the own. God oh, by Jesus is coming back oh, on me.
2: Lord, I wonder why this is my redeemer's go. Lord, I wonder why this my redeemer's home. All I want